This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Hello, my name is Mark Borden. I'm a chief editorial officer at Ego Speed Worldwide. I think about content all the time. I think that it's one of those words that's sort of dangerous. It reminds me of this German saying from the 30s where they said, every time I hear the word culture, I reach for my revolver. Content has sort of lost meaning in the way that creativity and innovation has lost meaning. But what it really is, is how a person or how a company is expressing what they stand for. So content is ways of delivering what it is that you stand for, what you mean, and, and what you celebrate. From New York City, you're listening to Content Is Your Business. Conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. Uh, pleasure to be here. I'm Michael Viasnior, VP of Design and User Experience at Hearst Newspapers. I'm joined with Amber Mundinger. Hi, everyone. And Natasha Charlton-Brown. Hey there. I think to start this off, my first question is, you have a history of taking what may be a pre-existing story or mantra or perhaps positioning for a brand in the marketplace and doing an incredible job of twisting. In fact, you've helped me shape marketing campaigns for free, and you should be charging me a lot of money for that, but it's always a good conversation. <laughs> Uh, what drives your unique perspective? Like, how do you how do you go from understanding what is to potentially getting them to where they should be? So there's a couple different ways to do this. Um, when I was at Fast Company, I was a senior editor, and oftentimes when you're in a room full of other writers and editors, you can you can experiment with your thinking. And so I came up with this idea where I thought, you know what, I think randomly and I execute strategically, right? So the front end of that is um, eclectic or eccentric or depending on who's saying or looking flaky or, you know, but when you can actually execute strategically, that kind of bolsters and kind of solidifies a platform, right? So oftentimes you have to keep your mind open. And I'll say that we start with a shotgun and get to a laser beam. So think about the work we did at the New York Times, right? The New York Times had a very clear purpose. And what they wanted to do is have every story or every piece of content, and I'm talking about editorial or the publishing side, kind of ladder up to this big idea that they want to help people and readers understand the world and lead better lives, right? So all of a sudden, you've got that clear idea of what this company does. And so you can start thinking a little bit about what does that mean to a piece of advertising content? What does that mean to a Pulitzer Prize winning investigation? Um, where does that intersection of church and state, which is super scary, right? Because it calls into question integrity. It's... Um, it calls into question whether media can be bought. But how do you turn that gray area into a sweet spot? And so the best way to do this, right, is to keep your mind open, um, know that there is a target, and then get yourself around both like-minded people and contrarians and have really clear and really open and really, you know, I love the word polemic because it's a nice way of saying having a fight, Right, but you're not ad hominem. You're not against the person. You're just fighting for an idea, and it's a good way to test your thinking. So, I think the way to do it is to get around people that agree with you, get around people that disagree with you. Um, think about culture. Think about the things that are most important and happening, like now. Think about if you can what's happening in six months, and then think about that evergreen purpose of the organization you're working with. You know, if it's the Times, it's um, helping yeah, people yeah. live better lives, mm -hmm. right? If it's Fast Company, it's like the business of innovation, creativity, and design. If it's Nike, just do it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if it's 
Apple, you're trying, trying to challenge the status quo through creativity. Yeah. And having that clear sense of what you're going after will help you develop the content that then drives the actual pieces of things that you make. So like, I mean, no, no, it's incredible. It's a great answer. And, and in fact, we, uh, you know, it started at Hearst about two years ago. And one of the issues that we were, uh, that I had observed was that there was no uh, single purpose. Right. What, what was the story arc of the design team and what were we here to do? Uh, and if you, you know, put them all together, let's say you have 10 story arcs in your career. And so you want to make them intentional and, and impactful. Uh, if I were to take Mark Borden and distill it down to a story arc, of maybe the next four years, what is the thing that drives you forward? What is it that um, you would like to achieve? Everybody wants to build an audience, right? And I'm not talking about a personal audience. I started my career as a journalist. And to be honest, the reason I wanted to be a writer was because if I met a woman at a party and she asked me what I did, I could say I was a writer. I didn't think there was anything cooler. And I thought maybe it was a little bit sexy. And and I like the idea of wrestling with ideas and words and trying to put together something that communicated not only what I thought, but what other people thought. And and then you're thinking, like, how do you take that message? And people have a lot of things that they can read or watch in their lives. And so you have to create a bar of like, well, they're going to let me into their mind. It better be something worthwhile. So as I think ahead in the next few years, one of the things I love doing, I love working with underdogs. Right. So you've got brands that are struggling against an established leader. And, you know, it's great that there are Nikes of the world, that there are Facebooks, that there are Amazons, that there are Apples, that there are these companies that sort of know everything and can do everything right in many ways, even though we're always on the precipice of something mm -hmm. going wrong. Um, but, you know, there are brands that are challenger brands. There are brands that want to kind of establish themselves. And I think what's kind of fun is you take somebody who has a great idea and a great energy, and then you kind of elevate them through strategic purpose and then kind of a ideally a big idea that attracts people to you, but not a stunt, right? Because stunts are great, but then they fade. And we're living in a news cycle that's just constantly changing, right? And so nothing sticks. But I like this idea of where you have a um, – it's not a golden ticket exactly, but you sort of announce something. And I was thinking about this on the way here. I've always wondered why City Bike didn't have a program where they announce every month who rode the furthest. They've got all the data, right? And then at the end of the year, sure. you've got a king or queen of City Bike. And then, as you know, like last two weeks ago, they had the Century Ride in New York City. And I think they're saying it's the last one, which I think is an ideal thing for City Bike to get on because what you do, <laughs> right? is you announce that we're going to do the City Bike Century. Sounds right. pretty good, right? And what you do is that each month you kind of name these people, and then what do you got? you got little pieces of content, right? You've got little documentaries. Who's this person in January, right, during the coldest month of the year that rode, you know, 2,000 miles? And you've got little documentaries. And so, I don't know, I think the idea is how do you tell stories? How do you tell stories that have an impact? And then how do you work with a team of people that are, I mean, my – best career experience, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, Michael, was that when we had Protopia at the New York Times and we were working with a gang, this was like a group of people that Michael and Nick Van Amberg had built into this family of almost like creative renegades in the building. Hmm. And the idea was to show the New York Times, which could be this patrician kind of stentorian voice of authority, right? Like the authority in what's happening in news. But this little design shop inside this building 
was showing this company how you can actually use design thinking and creativity to actually push the way you think about storytelling. So I think you'll find that the problem with asking me questions is that I don't have like a two sentence answer. I mean, I can get us to three words, which I think advertising likes a lot, um, but maybe not in this conversation. I'm fascinated about that process. So you talking about the New York Times and I get where you started. You needed to find a purpose. You found the purpose. How on earth do you get from A to B, though, with such a diverse group of people with church and state in the room? I mean, do you ever get to the point where everybody agrees that, yes, this is our, our mission or you just have to make a decision and move on at some point? Well, I think that's a great question, right? So I came to The New York Times to work on this project called Project Y. Right? And the New York Times loves having projects with a, you know, Project X, mm. Project Y, and not just letters, but those were the ones that came to mind. And and it was, um, why should I subscribe, right? You get bumped out of that 10th article, you're ready to read that one story, and it's like, sorry, sucker, paywall, <laughs> you know? And it's like you're being held up by the New York Times. And so what do you do? Well, forget this. I'm going to go somewhere else. But what if you actually link them to a site that celebrated what was wonderful about the New York Times. So I'd come from Droga 5. Um, before that, I was at Fast Company as a journalist. And I was brought in to agitate, right? I mean, to speak truth to authority, I, was, I like to think of myself as one of those uh, Shakespearean fools that could sort of speak truth to the king and not get killed because oftentimes what you're doing is making sense and everybody else might be a little bit afraid to. So... I was seeing all this remarkable work that the Times had done that was on the more eclectic side. You look at the slow-mo documentary, right, about a neuroscientist who decided, you know what, I am just collecting more stuff and working and I'm going to die. And I think his words were a um, classic American asshole, right? Mm. And so he decides to um, buy a pair of rollerblades and just glide on the beach in San Diego. And what he found that he was achieving the sensation of flying. So you've got that op doc, which is very cool. And then there's this science section story about, I don't know, it's like thousands of snakes in Canada wake up for hibernation. The first thing they do, they don't eat, they have sex. And it's like this snake orgy. And I'm like, wow, that's such a cool story. It's so interesting. And then we had drone photography. And so I built this site that showed like, yes, we nail politics. Yes, we nail um, business. Yes, the New York Times is the voice of authority when it comes to the news of the day, but there's so much more. So I present it to the room and there's a lot of head nodding and people getting into it. But then there's like, you know, it's a little bit too much, you know, pull back. And all of my Shakespearean fool starts to feel a little insecure. So I go back a little bit to the, I become New York Times and mm. I find myself presenting to Mark Thompson. Mark Thompson's the CEO. And at one point at the end, he's like, he's got a British accent and I'll, I'll do it, but it's probably not the best. And he'll say, Mark, it's a little too broccoli. And I'm like, broccoli? He's like, yeah, a little too kale. And I say, oh, so, so what you want is a little less kale and more cronut. And he's like, Mark, what's a cronut? And I said, oh, it's a croissant and a donut. And it was really innovative. It kind of changed the morning breakfast, you know, and. And he's like, yeah, a little less kale, more cronut. And so what that made me realize, right, is that if you can have a dichotomy where you break something down, right, and, um, and you start thinking like, he actually, and the Times wanted to celebrate this 
kind of evolved thinking, right? They had a innovation report that came out and said, we're way behind where we should be when it comes to our digital presence. And people took it really seriously. And there's a guy named Steve Duenas, who's just one of my heroes, and he's just a remarkable um, thinker. And what he did was he transformed the New York Times story so that if there was a story about four special forces officers killed in Niger, that's a story where a lot of people step back and they'll be like, wait a minute, how do I pronounce the name of that city? Um, second of all, where is it? And, and you get taken back by it. But what he understood, you put a map that's interactive on it. And so all of a sudden you see where it is in Africa. And then you see where it is in relation to the Middle East. And then you see where it is in relation to Europe. And then you understand that like, oh, well, there's an ISIS stronghold there. And you can see where it's related to Islam and Muslim um, fundamentalism. And then you have a uh, videographer on the ground showing you what it looks like. So all of a sudden you go from leaning back to wanting to dig in. And all of a sudden this 1,500-word story about a um, group of special forces um, soldiers being killed to being something like, wow, this feels really immediate. So I guess the thing you have to do, right, and what, where I was lucky is that I came from a journalism background and I'm fluent in journalism. And then I worked at Droga 5 and I became fluent in advertising. And I understood that there's a sweet spot in the middle. That gray area doesn't have to be something you're afraid of. You can actually create amazing stories that brands will want to be around, right? So you build an audience and all of a sudden you can say like, look, you, you can't control the content, but you can have access to our audience. So not saying it's not tricky, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. saying there aren't a lot of cats to mm -hmm. herd, mm -hmm. but you have to be a jujitsu thinker. You have to be, you have to have conviction in your ideas. You have to have a partner like Michael Villasenor. You have to have um, newsroom people that um, kind of respect you and you have to prove that through good thinking. Yeah. And 100%. then you have to um, be open to being disappointed and then having to move mm -hmm. on, you know, or being open to being psyched. So is that kind of where, I mean, you have two mottos and you spoke about one earlier, <laughs> but is that where the combine and conquer comes well, from? See, combine, so thank you. Combine and conquer is one of my, I like taking cliches and flipping them inside mm -hmm. out. It's, it's a little bit cheap, but it can be really powerful. So we had a program at the Times that was called the Annual Sales Conference, and I produced it. It's a full day TED event where mm -hmm. our best editorial thinkers get on stage and talk about what they're doing. So we'd open it with Michael Barbaro being interviewed by Maggie Haberman and Lisa Tubin, who is the producer. And what they did was a mini daily about the creation of the daily and why the New York Times was doing this. And so we are putting a stake in the ground saying podcasts are important. The New York Times is going in big. We're not just putting a journalist in a room with a microphone and having him read the front page. We're actually bringing in professionals and we're going to think if we're going to do a Russian scandal, um, we're going to play Tchaikovsky in the background. Will anybody know it's Tchaikovsky? Who knows? But we're going to actually get the details. So that's the day. And I'm thinking after producing it a couple of times, I'm like, wait, this isn't a sales conference because we actually invited all of the internal salespeople. So like 1,500 people would come to the time center and we invited all those people to be in the audience. And I'm like, this is not a sales conference. This is a global assembly. There's only a couple of people in the world that can have a global assembly, the UN and the New York Times. So we changed the name and names are important. And then I'm thinking about a theme. And I'm looking at the cover of the New York Times, and you see it's um, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy kind of defining the Me Too movement. Um, you'll see Maggie Haberman at the time she was working with Glenn. Everybody's having a partner. There's a team, right? The Pulitzer Prize-winning Russian scandal investigation was 16 people. And all of a sudden, you've got a newsroom that's driven by ego, 
that's driven by the idea of a solo reporter mindset that has understood that the world is too big to be a mm. one-person reporting team. You have to combine to conquer. And then we have a sales side, right? And what are they driven by? They're driven by their fee and they're driven by the sale and they're driven by the money. So you don't want to share that. And while nobody would say that, that's sort of a truth, right? Right. Because if, if you're working with a team, then all of a sudden you're 100% of what you make is split in four. But at the same time, if our newsroom can do it, if they can work together, damn well better have our publishing side work together. Because when you're doing big programs like a Samsung 360, 365, that's not a one-person program. It's a team. And so the idea was, how do we build a team and how do we build team thinking and how do we do it through content and how do we do it through ideas? And so Combine and Conquer was something I'd been thinking about for years and I kind of gave it to the Times, right? And I didn't give it like, you know, it's like, is it silly to throw out an idea for City Bike in a podcast that they may or may not take? I don't know if I care anymore, right? Like if people really want to work with me, sure, let's work together. But ideas are things that have to be talked about. And, and I think about things in the way of like bullets and feathers. Right? If you share an idea with somebody and they like it and they give you some feathers, well, then you build it into a bird and you hope it flies. But if somebody can give you a bullet and kill it, that's also a gift because a dead idea is something you can stop working on. Very interesting. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, mic drop. <laughs> um, I think, okay, so we, we've talked a lot about the New York Times and, and I understand that Publis is after, but I, I would love to unpackage some of the – some of the the ways you created unique content angles at Publicis or Fast Company, and okay. I know there's a lot. There's a myriad of companies in between. Uh, House Industries, the shirt you're wearing today. When we consider our audience that's listening to this podcast, and thank you so much for listening, how would you give them advice on thinking about like what, what is a process of taking an RFP or taking a an ask from uh, from a boss? And distilling that into what may be an idea or a series of ideas, do you go through a creative process uh, when encountering, let's say, this this sort of opportunity? Sure. Let's just take a step back. When I, I left Fast Company and ended up at Droga 5, I'd sold them on this idea of having an editorial director. And so what an editorial director would do is take a look at culture, kind of define key moments, whether it was you know gender and equality or race or security or data, right? And you could... Find out ways that your clients, your best clients, could actually engage in those conversations. So you have a framework, right? And then with that framework, you start thinking about clients. And so one of my first assignments was to work with Chobani. And at the time, we were going to do a Super Bowl ad for them. So what they did was they basically created a beer ad for yogurt, right? They have mm -hmm. this bear go into a Alaskan version of a bodega, get furious that he can't find anything good to eat thrashes the place, finds Chobani, and leaves. 30-second spot, Super Bowl. It's all right. It wasn't the classic Droga, you know, kind of the stunt where you do a Mark Echo tag of Air Force One, mm -hmm. right? But at the same time, it was solid. It was smart. It was kind of nodding to the fact that Chobani's about how it matters. Um, bears want to eat good food. They don't want to eat junk. And it was a way of capturing attention. But I started thinking about what if Hamdi Ulukaya, right, the CEO – wrote a op-ed piece afterwards saying like, look, Super Bowl was fun. It was a great time. But what we're really here to announce is that we're going to withdraw from the yogurt wars, right? And we're going to withdraw from this media-constructed kind of business-embraced false uh, conflict. Because the reason we're going to withdraw from the yogurt war is because we're going to start a food revolution. And we're going to actually start thinking about what we eat, how we eat, the chemicals that people put into it and how we can actually 
change what's happening to, you know, in many ways, humanity and be a force for good. So we have these ideas, right, in this framework, and we're thinking like, well, how do we take a big moment like the Super Bowl and then actually come up with something which I thought was even a little bit bigger? And so what I didn't realize, and I'd sent this, an op-ed of 700, 800 words, I wrote it in the voice of Hamdi, and I'm thinking like, all right, cool, these guys will, I wasn't expecting massive accolades, but I thought, you know, here, I did a good job. And all I could hear were like the zeros and ones of a unopened email. And Andrew Essex, who was the co-chairman, got back to me. I was like, oh, this is great. And I couldn't figure out exactly why. And I kind of got bitter. And I was like, oh, ad people, they just want three, three words. Anything more than three words, they won't read. And so I started thinking a little bit like, A, I'm not going to last in this job very long. Um, B, how do you communicate in this new environment? And as a journalist, you pitch a story and you get maybe a hundred words and you set it up in a way that makes the editor want more and it makes them understand why it's potent to the audience. And then, and they come in and they say, okay, and they assign it to you, right? It's like that idea alchemy where you take something that happened in your brain and turn it into a thing that you write that then turns into money in a way, right? And so we were going to do a campaign for Honeymade and Honeymade is a graham cracker. And what we wanted to do is make this graham cracker synonymous with tolerance and inclusion, and I'm like, this job is definitely not going to last very long, <laughs> right? It's like, how do you turn a graham cracker? And so we work with really smart people and we started thinking about graham crackers being wholesome. It's like that one cookie you can give your kids and not feel bad about. And what does wholesomeness equate to? It equates to love. And then the New York Times and the Pew Trust had just did a story about the changing American family. And the American family had went from, you know, white mom, white dad, two white kids, two straight families gay family, mixed race, mixed race gay, military, single families. And so we're making a series of documentaries about the new American family and what they have in common, which is love and wholesomeness. And so all of a sudden, we had this idea. We had a purpose. And then we had an, a, a content framework. And so we worked together, right, to get back to your question, to think about, like, what is this brand? Who am I trying to communicate with? And so, so what I did was I built a deck, my first deck, right? And it's... Um, and Michael's helped me with a lot of decks. <laughs> um, and I realized that a deck is like a children's book, right? I mean, how many words are in the Word of the Wild Things are? Maybe 50? Mm. Not many, right? And so if you have the right image and the right words, and then some voiceover can guide you through. And so we actually took people through this idea that, you know, change happens in pop culture a lot of times. So you had Ellen on the cover of Time admitting she was gay. You had Modern Family. You had RuPaul. There's a documentary called The Other F Word. So you, culturally, you see all this change happening around the American family. And so what we realize is a tipping point happens when business embraces that change, right? So putting it into a larger cultural context. And so you could see that Oreos had embraced that particular group and did a remarkable campaign around it. Cheerios embraced multi-race families. The Gap had a, a Sikh in one of their ads um, and when they received a ton of backlash, they actually made him their avatar for everything from social to all their um, kind of audience-facing media. So you saw these verticals that brands were choosing. And what we're saying is that like, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're going to embrace it all because at the core of it is love. And, and sort of putting it into a cultural context, putting it into a business context, and then showing how America in many ways – and this is – during the Obama administration, where we were seeing a lot of kind of change and evolution and, and less of what we're seeing now, you could you could actually frame something like that where all of a sudden a graham cracker could authentically, right, represent tolerance and inclusion. 
and then not just seem like some kind of marketing ploy. So you you had a brand manager for Honeymade that understood the power of this message. You had a agency that was super excited about it. You had an editorial director that could put it in context and share it with the press. Mondelez? Mondelez. Thank you very much. So you have all these things coming together, and then you start to see <laughs> the New Yorker do a big piece <laughs> on tolerance and inclusion and our mm -hmm. campaign, right? The New Yorker, right? I mean, that's like the titanium media publication that you want to have right about you. The USA Today covered the launch. And we knew there was going to be a backlash. We knew that somebody was going to say, like, you know what? This is the way a family should be. What you're kind of espousing is, like, heresy. And so when that was brewing, we also understood, like, well, how do you respond to it? Right? How do you put out some more content? Because you want to defend yourself, but then there's also the marketing aspect, right? Because something spikes and then it dips. And so we decided to take all the hate mail, hired these artists – and had them make a sculpture of the paper into the word love, right? So it turned cool. hate into love, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, so I think the thing to do, right, when you're coming up with ideas is you have to, you have to be lost in the beginning. You have to think there's no way that a graham cracker could represent this or anything can do this. And then you have to work on it and you have to hopefully gather feathers, you know, and then you get enough of them, and, and then when it's flying, you have to realize, well, how can we even take it higher, right? So I think, I mean, that's, that's a long answer to what you're asking, but that's that's one example. I think, you know, at Fast Company, when I got there, we were a magazine that had a really solid franchise in the Masters of Design. That's how I got involved with House mm -hmm. Industries. House Industries is this amazing uh, design agency that has an expertise in fonts, and you've seen them everywhere, whether it's the Shake Shack is Neutraface, and they designed that uh, on the 1950s mid-century master, uh, Richard Neutra. Um, the Lucky Charms font is theirs. They redesigned the New Yorker can feel. They're this amazing company, and they're outliers. They're from Delaware, and I just love them immediately, and I wrote the story about them for the Masters of Design. We had the uh, most innovative companies list, right? So we have these two pillars of what Fast Company wanted to be. And then I was like, we need a third part of the triangle, right? You need three chords and the truth, right? That's the rock and roll song. And so I thought, what about the most creative people in business? And at the time, there wasn't – I remember putting it into Google and nothing came up. And that's just rare. And so we decided we were going to build a – not only a franchise for the magazine that was editorially driven that would take over the June magazine, 100 most creative people in business, not just your typical designers or – filmmakers or even advertising people but like we would look at um we'd look at doctors we'd look at engineers we'd look at you know data scientists and if they could find out a creative solution to a problem they could be open to being included in this list mm -hmm. and so the other insight right was that couldn't this be a thought leadership conference that could extend the voice and the authority and this kind of the reason that fast company is different from fortune and forbes and Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, is that we have a different take on business. And one of the key things we'd look at is, yes, innovation, yes, design and creativity. And when you had those three things, you were different from those of those other publications. When I worked at Fortune, people say, oh, you work at Forbes? I mean, always they would confuse the two. And it's because they are similar, mm -hmm. right? But Fast Company, you want to build a unique point of view and you want to create content platforms, if you want to call them that 
or editorial directions. You want to create opportunities where you can build a franchise that then lives in print, lives in digital. And then what I'm really interested in is the live, right? How do you get people mm -hmm. up in front of other people and bring them together? Because there's nothing worse than like the fake digital connection and that kind of angry emails that can happen because it's easy to um, just get furious and kind of let something fly in an email. But when you actually meet people in person and you talk to them, you kind of recognize that humanity. And I think right now we have to be careful of the robots, you know, they're going to take over if we're not, if we're not <laughs> like maintaining our humanity. I know you, I talk about robots <laughs> yeah, all the time, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> unlike robots, we have to eat at some point. <laughs> uh, Marcus brought a, a snack for us all to share. Do you want to tell us a little mm. bit about what you brought? Yes. So there is this wonderful bakery in my neighborhood. I struggle with the name a little bit. It's called, uh, it's, it's in French, Oh Marvelous de Fred. And it's this wonderful French bakery on it's where Hudson turns into 8th Avenue. I think it's 8th Avenue right at Jane Street in the West Village. And we're having a sugar brioche. Yum. Hi, I'm Roseanne Gold. I'm a chef, an author, a food writer, and the host of a new podcast called One Woman Kitchen. So excited to be doing this because I'm interviewing the most fascinating women in the food world. And you don't even have to be interested in the food world or be part of it to enjoy these remarkable women's stories. It's diverse, it's international, it's intergenerational. What's most exciting to me is that the concept of One Woman Kitchen means something different for everyone. You can listen to One Woman Kitchen every week at onewomankitchenshow.com and also where all the best podcasts can be found. Thank you again, Mark, for that amazing snack. It was delicious. And now, unfortunately, we know where to get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be there like every week. <laughs> you order them online. Yeah. Um, All things in moderation. <laughs> so, Including moderation. If I may, Mark, I want to go back to something you started on when you were talking about what you love about content. And you used the, a very specific word that I've kind of got hung up on. You said content is dangerous or can be dangerous. And I'm wondering... Is that a word that you had to think over over a long period of time to land on? Or is it something that's always just been a descriptor for you for content? And if so, how does that word and that approach infiltrate into other parts of your life? You know, take away the organizations you worked for. So the enemy of journalism is jargon, right? The enemy of communication is jargon, right? And it could be other words can be used. So when I say content is dangerous, is that when, when a word loses its meaning and it becomes this thing that you just say just give me more content. I need more content, right? And and it's something like, again, in 96, Bill Gates said content is king, right? And he built an empire on software. Microsoft Word is nothing. It's a blank page. Excel is a spreadsheet with nothing in it. What makes it come alive? The actual words. How do you move people? I mean, that's where the content is. So when he says content is king, that's like, oh, okay, this is 96, right? That's a long time ago. And he was really prescient, really on top of it. So I get nervous when something becomes a buzzword, when it becomes something like, oh, we just need more of that. And let's let's bring in as many content creators and content strategists 
to build a content platform that will be a content empire. You know, when you think about what we talked about earlier about the New York Times and knowing that, would you describe the stories that appear on the New York Times homepage as content? Sure, right? But they're they're news. It's stories that tell you about how the world works, right? You look at Fast Company and its approach to business. You look at, you know, when 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 Dollar Shave Club, which is one of my favorite companies in, as far as a content creator, Right. I mean, I've got a, I've got something on my, on my phone that every time I pull it up, I laugh because it's like, why does my butthole itch? And it's just like, <laughs> now I'm not sure if this is the kind of show that you can talk about those things, but it's like somebody in a meeting was like, how about this for a story idea? Right. They know their audience. Excuse mainly male. They've got an irreverence is what they started the brand with. Right. That video that they first did that just overwhelmed the internet their, their site kind of failed but they got so many business they went up against gillette they went up against chick they went up against these like kind of monopolists of the shaving world with an irreverent attitude but that's to me like amazing content not necessarily problems with your backside but you know if you understand your audience if you can sort of really think about who you're talking to because it gets back to my my, my bar for a story is like if somebody's going to read something that i wrote and it's going to take them five minutes what I want them to say is that that was worth the five minutes of my life that I spent reading that, right? And that's five minutes they could have played with their kid, five minutes they could have been with their wife, five minutes they could have been out partying, five, whatever, right? And so you don't want people to walk away and say, like, what a waste of time. That had nothing to do with me. That didn't change my way of thinking or, like, broaden my – it didn't make me laugh. It doesn't have to be deep. It can be shallow and funny. But if it's shallow, vapid, and kind of a waste of time, that's when you get into content danger. So – being a journalist, what are your thoughts, especially working with brands and agencies on branded content and making, I guess, good branded content that to your point, um, you can spend five minutes on as a reader and you didn't waste five minutes of your life. And then do you think the consumer sees the difference these days? I mean, obviously, you know, when it's really bad, but, you know, I feel like there's a, a bit of a blurred line now. Right. Again, you reach for your revolver sometimes and you're like, wait a minute, you know, what's happening here with um, the content that I'm making? And and I think when you tell a good story that is meaningful to the brand, I think Patagonia does a great job, right? Where yeah. they great job. Um, they're able to sell you products that are really well made, that are sustainable, that kind of evoke a lifestyle and a way of thinking that I think is um, ambitious and um, and just remarkably cool, right? Like to think that a company could, uh, you know, if your founder writes a book called "What Let My People Surf," mm-hmm. right? Like that that that's that's all content, and and then they back it up, right? So they get a tax break and then they donate it to I think it was the cause for the fighting for the national parks that were going to be cut up, right? But like, right. so they put their money where their mouth is, they put their content where their beliefs are. So I think that Black Friday off. So that's um, that's a great one too. It's funny you're reading my mind. REI that's opt outside. (laughs) How bold is that? Yeah. Right. They say you know what, and that started. This is the other thing that I love. Right. Inside and outside. Hardest thing to do when I was working with publicists and USAA, getting the comms person, internal HR person, and marketing external to meet once a week. It's a ridiculous thing to put on your resume as an accomplishment, but it was amazing. (laughs) Because when you can actually have the people inside believing the same thing that the people outside are believing, right? So REI, they say, what should we do for Black Friday? Somebody raises their hand, we'll never do this. What if we close? 
when it gets to the CEO, he's like, oh, flip, we have to do it, right? The biggest sales day of the year. They're all about getting people outside. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, what did it do? It became a movement. It wasn't just REI. Other people got involved. So, But you're right. Like that's mm -hmm. that's where, look, is it branded content? Sure. Does it cut into the fact that like, okay, do we really need to investigate Patagonia's sustainability? I mean, they're not going to be journalists and fully right. look into exactly how they're doing things. And from what I see, they actually believe and care about sustainability and finding new ways to do it. And you know, I had a jacket that was falling apart. And when I took it in there, they're like, look, we can fix this. That's what we want to do. But we can also break this thing down, use the down, use the zipper, use the nylon. Mm -hmm. We've got ones that are better that'll keep you warmer. And so they gave me the choice, right? But it wasn't like throw the old one out. Mm -hmm. They were actually believing what they said. And so, so I don't think brands need to investigate themselves. I think you can celebrate what it is you stand for and what it is you believe in without sort of somehow compromising and not, you know, looking into what journalists look into, which is like, where's the Me Too moment? Where's the mm -hmm. scandal? Where's the corruption? Right? Because that's what we need journalists for. They need to hold power accountable. I don't think that's a company's job. I don't right. think that's a branded content role. But I think that inside you can look at what a company's doing and say, wait a minute, we shouldn't be in this space. We shouldn't be doing this. We should, we should have a conscience. We should believe in our people going outside, right? We should celebrate the fact that if we're selling outdoor gear, that we shouldn't have people like, you know, doing a running of the bulls on Black Friday to like kill themselves to come and buy a kayak for a hundred dollars less. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's not what we stand for. So I think that's how I think about it. And, and it's an evolving thing, right? You're always thinking and yeah. thinking and thinking. I don't – I have a core philosophy about the way I look at things, but then I'm also open-minded enough to think like, Great interview. how does the world change? How am I changing? How am I wrong? How am I right? It's frustrating for people. <laughs> I've always started on a – oftentimes you go micro to macro, right? So if you're a journalist and you want to do a story about data centers and nobody in the room is going to raise their hand because there's these rooms in the middle of nowhere that are just filled with like data servers, right? And But then you think, well, what are they really? Many people talk the modern day library of Alexandria. It's like the repository of all human thought and information. So then all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's kind of interesting. So when you meet a company, right? And I had a friend that was the CMO at Peloton. And this was a couple of years ago, and they were struggling with what their what was their narrative, right? What was their what was their brand really um, trying to represent? And they brought me in for a couple of weeks, and you have to do right is you have to really embrace the process of trying to figure it out because a lot of people just want the answer, mm. and let's do a brainstorm, we'll get the answer. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen like that, right? It requires interviews. You talk to the CEO and the CEO's guy named John Foley is this amazing executive. He understood the transformative idea of taking a, a spin bike and then attaching it to the internet and to an entertainment outlet and creating this connection. But he was a bit of a technologist and so he's obsessed with the technology. And we would talk about the technology a lot and I'm like, yeah, okay, the bike is great and it works well and you guys designed it yourself and, and you've got – all the cables and all the classes and then you've got the studio that you can go to in person and then you've got this like library of classes. I said, but you know, I keep looking at this Facebook community and they're insane. 
Like the people that have a Peloton are so into the Peloton. And what is a Peloton? A Peloton is a group of riders and they kind of cling together to kind of help each other. And so you're only as fast in some ways as the slowest person. And what you do is you give the person in the front a break, right? And it's like when you see birds flying. And so it's like, it's really about a community and it's about a, um, an exchange of um, accomplishments. And, and yes, the technology is there, but it's like, you don't want to be a, a pipe, right? You want to be a delivery system for this feeling of accomplishment, of change, of, of physical fitness, of, of support, right? And so, so working with that client and, and it started with conversations. It started with coffee, right? Vicki Reed, who is their CMO, we just started talking about it. And then she brought me in. Um, a guy named Mike Herring was the president of Pandora. We'd known each other for a long time. We were at South by Southwest. We went to this little restaurant I like. And, you know, we just had a few tequila gimlets, which is sort of my go-to drink. <laughs> always helps. Yeah. And we started talking about what Pandora's problem was, right? And Pandora would always talk about, you know, again, it was about the technology and it was about the algorithm and it was about how what what it really was missing was like a, a human connection. And, and I know we're seeing themes here, right? Like human connection. But it was this company that had lost its 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 place in the world, right? And And what that meant was you go in and you start talking to the senior leadership, the marketing leadership, the strategy team, and you start doing interviews and you do interviews in a way like a journalist does interviews, right? Um, oftentimes, I find that agencies that work with brands have, it's not, it's not always a mercenary relationship the way that like, you know, a PR person's job is to get the story out there no matter what, right? And it's like you're paid to, to do that. Maybe the stereotypical, um, there are really good PR people. But as a journalist, you actually ask some of the more difficult questions and you don't worry about getting fired, right? And I think if you're a really good advocate for the client, whether you're a, you know, if I'm working for these people, I'm not, I'm not worried about saying the wrong thing around them because your job is to go from confusion to clarity, right? And if I'm confused about something as an outsider, well, maybe there's a lot of other people that are confused. So I think what you want to do when you're building a relationship with a client, even in the beginning, is you want to be really curious, and then you want to you want to mention the elephant in the room sometimes, right? You want to say the thing that nobody else is saying, not just to be an agitator, but to push people out of their comfort zone. Because once you do that, you know it's not like you're saying it because you're going to be like gotcha. It's like, oh, is there a misunderstanding? Is there something that I don't quite get, but that everybody is thinking? And then when you actually have that conversation, you can then take it and realize, oh, okay, it, it is a misunderstanding or it's something that's true and how do we change it? And that gets to like the truth, right? And that gets to authenticity and that gets to where you want to go with great content. Cool. So it's not a, there's not a formula for pitching. I think you should care about the brands you work for. I mean, I loved, okay. I got on a Peloton bike and I'm like, wow, this is great. Um, House Industries always blows my mind whenever I see their work and what they do and and even working with them at the magazine, they uh, I wanted to call them typographer freaks, mm -hmm. right? And so I asked them to do the design work for the layout, which was, you know, a little controversial at the time, have your subject that you're writing about mm -hmm. do the artwork. But we were able to come clean about it, and it was masters of design, and it wasn't like, yes, they were celebrating themselves, but we identified the gray area and then made it a sweet spot. And I think it's always good to 
find people you like, ideally find people you love, and then you become a collaborator and a partner more than just a, a client. Up next, we'll look at the more human side of Mark uh, with some personal questions. Do you love to laugh? Do you love great interviews with a lot of heart? Do you like good stories? Do you like to hear about life? Well, good news, because if you listen to a show called Funny People Talking, all of that happens, right, Danielle? All of it happens. Every single thing you said on that list and more. Hey, well, Elsie, does any of it not happen? It all happens. Come on, Elsie. <laughs> okay. It right. really happens. Okay, well, you should join us on Funny People Talking on Mouth Media Network. You can find us anywhere you can find a great podcast. And I know it's true because these people loved it. <laughs> Only for a short time while they were listening to the show, Then Life Sucked. Listen to Funny People Talking. talked a lot about content, which I, in a lot of ways, use synonymously with storytelling. Sure. Uh, what's your favorite story or storytelling mechanism at the end of the night when you have your daughter and son that you share with them? If it's a book or if it's a song, what does that look like? Okay, there's a couple different things. So right now I'm on book seven of the Harry Potter series with my eight-year-old son, Otto. Um, my second read, I did them with my 11-year-old daughter, Clementine. And I have to say this book, these series of books, they're just remarkable storytelling. It's good. It's evil. It's a sort of lone figure that's up against these tremendous odds that they have to do something that really kind of, you know, challenges their very essence of who they are and also what they represent, right? So that that the intimacy of reading to a child at bedtime and sort of hopefully turning them on to the idea of, and it's a book, it's pages, I'm not kindling, right? And so I think that's really nice to do. With my daughter in particular, she's a singer. When she was little, when she was two years old, she memorized Country Road. And the, when she, when you have a little two-year-old saying, uh, "Misty taste of moonshine," tear drop in my eyes, and t- but it's like "Misty taste of moonshine," you know, it's just adorable, right? And and so I have a whole collection of songs that I've been singing to her since she was a kid, and. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in Cape Cod one summer and Driver 8 by R.E.M. came on the radio and she was maybe four or five. And she's like, Dada, it's your song. And I'm like, well, I have to explain something. All those songs I've been singing you are not mine. But I think, again, there's this storytelling and there's a sharing stories and telling other people's stories and, and escaping the world you're in to go into another world. And, and songs are like poems, right, that have a backbeat and books are these remarkable things that people create out of their mind. And, and I think that that that's a good place to go. I'm obsessed with the court's obsession. I think the idea that you get a newsletter in an email that just deep dives into something. And I think one time they did it on squids and this is what you and I have always talked Mm -hmm. about, right? Like how do you take, so email, right? That's just, that's not cutting edge. Right. But then all of a sudden, if you send something, it's got a quiz, it's got a graphic, it's got a charticle, right? Like little staccato lines that give you bits of information about why a squid has ink and how it can do its camouflage cloaking mechanisms and how many people eat them and what's the best calamari and like all this kind of eclectic information about a deep dive of one subject. And so I get that and I'm like, wow, this is great. Mm-hmm. How can I do this for everybody? You know, it's just such a smart way to engage you in. It's like, the things that you weren't even interested in, you become interested in because of the point of view and the angle. 
So that's what I like, right? Like, I don't know if I like something until I'm very curious. I don't see the world like I'm, I get down on myself sometimes because I'm not a specialist. And when I was at Fortune, I think in some ways I didn't quite succeed as much as I would have liked to because I wasn't, I didn't write about tech. I didn't, you know, at one point people said, what do you do? I go, I write about creativity and how it changes business. I thought that sounded like a tight definition, but you know, at the time Yahoo had just hired their first surfer. And so my first thought was like, oh, I'm going to interview him and I'm going to interview six-time world champion Kelly Slater. Hmm. And I'm going to ask him the same questions. What do you think about when you surf? What do you eat before you surf? What do you, and, and it's the elephant in the room, right? That you surf the web and you, and then it was funny because you had this Yahoo nerd, right? Whose job was to come back to David Philo and Jerry Yang and tell them what's out there in the Cyberfest destiny. And then you've got Kelly Slater. <laughs> it's like, what goes through your mind when you surf? And he left the answer blank because that's what he doesn't think, you know? And the other guy's like, you know, jabbing coded applets to, you know, crash your computer. <laughs> so I think that, um, Again, there are different ways to tell stories and thinking about audience, thinking about, you know, when I'm with my son and we're reading a book, it's appropriate for the intimacy of the moment, you know, and <laughs> and I think that that's a and, – and being around kids I think is a good thing because I'm not far from being a kid a lot of times. and <laughs> um, and But having that kind of curiosity and seeing the world in a new way does remind you that that's something that everybody has in them. So we've, we've spoken a lot about you, your career, your children, but what would be the story of you? The abridged version, not the seven-volume version. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we, so, can, we can do that. No, that's another episode. No, it's, yeah. uh, but, <laughs> I think about that all the time, right? And I think about um, – I think that my story has been one of change, right? And I – I went to San Diego State for a couple of years because I didn't get into Berkeley. I didn't get into any of the Ivy League schools that I applied for. And so my safety school was San Diego State. And I was there for a couple of years. And it's known for being like this all awesome party school, which was great. But then I had this itch where I, I, I think I want to be a thinker. I want to be somebody that like writes stories. And so I'm sitting at Montezuma Hall, which is like pictures of beer and sunlight and San Diego perfection. I'm applying to NYU to transfer, and then I go to NYU, and I'm like, wow, I, I didn't know as much as my colleagues. I felt like I almost like needed to really start thinking. And, and I remember there was a moment where my roommate had organic chemistry in one hand. There might have been tequila gimlets involved. And then in the other hand, he had the complete <laughs> works of Shakespeare. And he was a pre-med student. He's like, each of these are going to have a significant impact on our career as the other, you know? And it was like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that's interesting, right? Like the words and, and thinking. And so I moved to San Francisco because I didn't know how to get a job as a writer. I didn't know what to do. And so you bartend and then you write and you think. And and then I moved to New York because I thought that's where you become a writer. And I never pitched a story. I never, I didn't know how to do it. I was just obtuse, right? The I never took a journalism class. And I had a friend that was in there at the Post. And I'm like, hey, have you ever noticed that all watches and advertising are set at 1010? It's like, no way. And so we pick up Vanity Fair and there's, mm -hmm. you know, Timex watch, everybody. It's 1009, 1010. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. But and I said, oh, well, there's a museum exhibit by a guy named Ed Keenholz. And he has a piece called Barney's Beanery. And he gave them all faces. And the faces are clocks instead of faces. And he sets them at 1010 because 1010 is a good time to go out and, um, and get lucky. 
because people have had a couple of drinks, they're more open to talking. And so basically it's like 10, 10 is a good time to get laid. And I'm thinking like, well, the Whitney's on Madison Avenue. The first law of advertising is sex sells, watches, 10, 10, Whitney, Keenholz, Madison Avenue. That's an interesting story. And he's like, okay, give me 200 words. I'll pay you $200. And, and so from there, I just realized, oh, I can, I can tell stories and I can take stories of things that are happening and put maybe some random things together and then execute strategically. And, and, you know, when I left Fast Company and started working at Droga 5, I was like, well, how do you apply this kind of journalistic thinking to brands and how you can pull them together, right? And so I learned a lot at Droga 5 about doing that because I didn't know what I was doing when I got there. And I think, again, maybe just to not go into the classic long answer here is that I'm constantly finding myself in environments where I'm uncomfortable and I don't feel like I know exactly what I'm doing, right? I got to the New York Times and I was sort of going to become this creative at large, right? Because the publishing side understands what a creative does and the newsroom understands what a writer or an editor at large does. And so you put them both together and you sort of confuse everybody, but you also have like two parts of a whole that people understand. And so what I have realized in my career is that it's okay to go into environments where you don't maybe know what's happening as long as you're confident enough in knowing how to figure things out. And I think that's where being a journalist comes in. You know, you're a perpetual grad student. You've got a paper due. You need to figure something out. You need to explain it to somebody. And so that's, I think, that's the way that I am approaching life. It's uh, embracing change being confident enough to know that I have really good storytelling skills, I have really good interviewing skills, and I know how to find talent and work and partner with talent. And um, that was one of the great things about working at the Times and working with Michael and his team because things I didn't know weren't a problem, right? And the things I did know were things that maybe some other people couldn't do. And so that was like... That's a good thing. So I think I can speak on behalf of everyone here. We've been extremely inspired by all the things that you've said. Yes. And, and in fact, it's it's gotten me thinking about how I can apply everything you said into mm-hmm. my day-to-day life and speak up, speak truth uh, to power. Unfortunately, we have an end. And I, I guess what we'd like is, it, could you give some final thoughts to our listeners or in us in the room? And then also, if you can help us or help our listeners understand how they can connect with you. One thing is that, again, Let's circle back to the beginning, things to be afraid of, things to be worried about as far as dangerous, right? Like when the word failure becomes a catchphrase, right? Like failure being the new success. Understand that nobody wants to fail, right? Nobody wants to hire somebody that becomes like, you know, what I sometimes fear is that you become a loss leader. You don't want that, right? But you don't want to be afraid. You don't want to be afraid to try things. You don't want to be afraid to push things. And sometimes there's a top right corner of the whiteboard that you can put in tiny little font, you know, an idea that might be scary now, right? But don't censor yourself, right? Put it up there and let people see it, right? Because if you're not careful, you're going to go into a room and think that you're going to tell somebody something new and progressive and they're going to say, it's a little too kale, right? Mm -hmm. You want to be able to tap into that kind of cronut thinking and that innovation. And and I think that what I find is that If you're working with the right people, even the wrong ideas are a starting place, right? The tyranny of the blank screen is one of my least favorite things, right? That's what was the worst part about being a writer. You'd have that blank screen. But when you put down your ideas and you start talking to people and you collect bullets or you collect feathers and you start really kind of engaging in something without fear, and it doesn't mean that everything is open, right? You still have to have some parameters because if not, 
you know, you can talk forever without the framing. So have the framing, have the understanding of where you want to go. Don't be, in, don't be afraid of the idea that like you're afraid to share. I mean, oftentimes that's like the best idea. And then if you say it and everybody's like, that's dumb. Well, take that and realize maybe it is, but maybe it's something you put in your pocket for a little while. You put in the right corner, you put on a card and and if you forget about it and you don't like it anymore, well, then it's fine. But if you really find something burning in you, there's a place for ideas. How can our listeners connect with you? Uh, so there's a website called egospeed.com, which is a portfolio site that can uh, reach out to me there. Um, I'm egospeed at gmail.com. And that's uh, usually the best way to reach me. You can find me on LinkedIn, but you know, it's full of robots. <laughs> uh, you speak on behalf of uh, myself, uh, Amber, and Natasha. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, yes, it was really thank fun. You so much. Thanks for having so me. This has been Content Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.